1: Hello and welcome back to the Train Happy Podcast. My name is Tally Rye, and today we are discussing all things PCOS, polycystic ovary syndrome, with the wonderful dietitian Julie Duffy Dillon. Julie's based in the US, and she has a really relatively unique approach to PCOS, in that she really approaches it with kindness, compassion and comes at it from a non-diet, intuitive eating approach, which I know that people listening to this podcast may be really interested in. Um, And we'll definitely get into all things PCOS in our chat. But before we do that, I wanted to let you know that we will be having the return of the Train Happy Retreats this summer. If you're based in the UK, we will be having a Peak District Retreat from the 20th to the 22nd of August. There are limited spaces available and some have already gone, but I wanted to let the podcast listeners know that there is a spot for them. And basically, it's going to be a weekend retreat hosted by myself where we get to work through the principles of intuitive movement in workshops. We get to do a dance party workout together, there's going to be a hike in the Peak District because it's such a beautiful part of the world and of course we'll have opportunities to relax, unwind and just really enjoy the time and opportunity for self-care because that really is at the, the you know the core of the weekend is really an opportunity for you to take some time out if you want to know more about the train happy uk retreat then i will put a link in the show notes for you to find out all about it and how you can book um but like i said there are limited spaces available so get booking as soon as possible and of course we can't get into our chat before hearing from train happy trooper of the week. This week's train happy moment and our train happy trooper is Kate. Kate sent me this message. Hi Tally, I have had a train happy moment. I'd planned to do two 15 minute dance workouts the other day because I still have in my head that I need to do at least 30 minutes for it to be a proper workout. But after completing the first one, I felt a little niggle in my hip, so instead of pushing through the pain like I usually would because no pain, no gain, I binned off the second dance workout and took to the mat for a few minutes of gentle stretching instead. Kate, thank you so much for sharing this train happy moment. And I love this little win of when we think about the rules that we learn from diet culture and we challenge them. It can just be so empowering to listen to your body and trust your body. And so I'm really glad that you took the opportunity to rest and have an opportunity to stretch. I think that's so important. So thank you for sharing. If you would like to be featured as Train Happy Trooper of the Week and share your train happy moment with the listeners, then please get in touch. You can email trainhappypodcast at gmail.com or you can direct message us on Instagram at trainhappypodcast and I do recommend you follow us on Instagram. We're sharing lots of uh, kind of extra footage from the episodes and yeah, it's it's the place to be if you want to know about all things Train Happy Podcast. Okay, enough from me. Let's get into our chat with the brilliant Julie Duffy Dillon. Julie, welcome to the Train Happy Podcast. Thank you so much for joining me today. How are you? I'm great. Thanks for inviting me on. I'm really excited to talk. I'm really excited. We're going to delve into PCOS and and everything that kind of encompasses that diagnosis, especially from a nutrition perspective. Um, You're based in the US and you are a dietitian who literally has, um, I suppose, PCOS in her title in terms of your speciality. But I'm just really curious, Julie, how you came to work in dietetics and then what it was about PCOS and and really Mm -hmm. specializing in that area that um, you know, how you kind of got there?
0: So my um, journey to becoming a dietitian, I always thought was really unique, but I have found it is not. <laughs> I laugh because as I tell you the story, you, you may um, be surprised how many dietitians share this kind of journey. But um, when I was trying to figure out where I wanted to go to college, I found a place I really wanted to go. And my parents said, in order to go there um, and for us to pay for it. You need to pick a major. And at that point, I didn't know what I wanted to do. I just wanted to go to college there. And so I went to college in the nineties and we had, um, we didn't have online like ways to figure out what we were going to study or like look into all the majors. So we had a big catalog of all the majors. And I remember just opening up and pointing to one and that was nutrition. I was like, I'm going to major in this. And my parents were like, that's great. That's you'll find a job. That's great. So then I went and study nutrition, really not knowing if I really wanted to do that or not. But in the, in that moment of my life, something that I was really into was um, like things that were creative, um, art, um, philosophy. And I really was thinking I wanted to be a therapist. Um, I also enjoyed science. I just wasn't very good at it. (laughs) So I enjoyed learning, but I didn't like do well in my exams and stuff. So as I went through nutrition, I found it to be actually a really good fit in many ways. Um, but then as I got closer to becoming a dietitian, I found that so many of the recommendations just didn't align with how I lived my life. like so many people in my major were doing things like um, restricting certain foods and um, having good and bad kind of terminology with foods. And as someone who's always experienced than privilege, I was never told to ever diet. Um, and it just, and also it wasn't something that I was like raised to think about with food, which part of that, again, is, I think comes from the privilege just never being told to diet, but I didn't find it to be really health promoting. I was like, I don't know why anyone would suggest eliminating all these foods. Does that mean I have to do that now? And that, that was, um, really hard to sit with, but as, uh, I, you know, we have to do a year after our undergrad and, um it's a pretty challenging year. And I didn't think I wanted to be a dietitian after it, but my mom encouraged me. She's like, you know, you just spent five years studying this. You have a lot of loans to pay for now. Um, like, why don't you just work at least for a year as a dietitian? And so I did, and I'm glad I did because it, I I worked in like a really big, I think it was like a thousand bed hospital. And I just wanted to see all the different things I could do as a dietitian. And I found, um, not, you know, I think it was maybe a year or two later working in pediatrics. And then I started working with higher weight kids and their families. And I really liked working in with kids and families. And I found it to be really fun. And I was able to do things like that was more like therapy, talking Mm -hmm. about food. And um, when I was in that space, I did feel though, like ill-prepared with working with family dynamics and stress and mood disorders Um, and, So I took a leave of absence for a few years and got a master's degree in mental health counseling. And from there, I was kind of hoping that, hey, I'm working with all these higher weight kids. Maybe by getting this extra training in psychology, I'll finally be able to help kids lose weight. I mean, that was the intention. Even though I was starting, like that's when I first read Intuitive Eating and um as i was like kind of putting on the dots like connecting them all um, i really started to appreciate after finishing that degree and working for a little while that oh oh diets are harmful and um, in that in that kind of realization i got really working got really into like working with food behavior and helping people reject diet culture i had no interest in pcos at this point but so many people with eating disorders who also were like really put through the ringer with like push to diet and it was it was just really hard to reject diet culture there were so many people with PCOS who were in that space so i looked into like how can i help someone with this condition without diets and diet culture and there really wasn't any information that i could find and so i had to dig and dig and dig and and um as i started doing that i found it to be something that was really needed there weren't other people talking about it in an anti diet space so voila i was like i think this is my work to do now you know and um that was about 15 years ago now and um i feel really um lucky and honored to be able to work with people with pcos cuz i don't have the condition and um it's really is a privilege to like hear what someone experiences with their relationship with food and to partner with them to um, mend it and hopefully recover it and rally with them to help advocate for some better care. So
1: that's that's my story. It's so interesting (laughs) because firstly, I love that you are interested in the psychology aspect as well because I do think that whenever we're talking about whether it is exercise or food, there's such a psychological component. And when you understand how our mental health plays into to to that kind of mix, it it really does, really does help. And I imagine seeing, you know, as you're now helping people kind of really heal their relationships with foods, like that must just only be like such a valuable skill to have and and to have that in kind of like your Toolkit really. Um, so, when it comes to PCOS, my very basic understanding really is that a lot of people are told to lose weight to manage the condition, um, less probably eat low carb to manage the condition, and that generally the kind of well, I know that in the UK it affects one in 10 women. So, it is common. What are you seeing with people who have PCOS and what are the kind of the hallmarks um, of the diagnosis?
0: So yeah, it sounds like in the UK and the US that there's a very similar kind of path. Mm-hmm. And um, most people that I talk to when they are told they have PCOS, they are told some misin- misinformation, which I have a feeling is similar in the UK that somehow the, their higher weight caused it, or they are eating wrong, and that caused it. And um, that is actually, that's like totally false. What we know about PCOS is that it's an endocrine disorder, and it starts in the brain. It is something that because of this endocrine disorder, it results in um, hormonal imbalances that basically create a set of symptoms. And the symptoms can vary from person to person. And I know you were asking about like diagnosis and um, currently, the way a person is diagnosed is really um, confusing because <laughs> it's basically a diagnosis of exclusion. So, if someone is suspected to have PCOS, doctors have to make sure they don't have some other things. And if that all comes back negative, then they have to look at a set of criteria called the Rotterdam criteria. And it's three different criteria. And if a person meets two out of the three, then they can get diagnosed with PCOS. And um, the the three criteria are um, some kind of issue with their period, whether it's um, an ovulation or irregular periods. And the issue with that is that means that people who haven't had their period yet or post-menopause technically can't be diagnosed with PCOS, but you have it your whole life. So it's not like you only... Have it when you are menstruating, <laughs> so um, so that's one piece. And then the second um, criteria is some kind of clinical sign, um, or so either clinical or just by um, lab values, some kind of um, way of knowing someone has higher circulating androgens like testosterone. And the third is cysts on the ovaries, which um, you know, quote cysts. I have little bunny ears for those who are just listening. <laughs> because it's not really cysts. Um, But, you know, the the name polycystic ovarian syndrome is always sort of silly because someone could be diagnosed with it but not actually even have these, quote, cysts on their ovaries. Um, And these these cysts... um, when people first started like discovering this condition, they thought that was like the reason why all these symptoms were happening, but really these are immature follicles that can result. And not everyone has this gathering of immature follicles on their ovaries again. And um, so again, it's, it's a diagnosis that for a lot of people um, all over the world, no matter like what kind of healthcare a person has, but it's, there seems to be this kind of period of, Uh, like questioning, like what, like kind of confused. And um, a lot of it comes down to like the way it's treated in the, in the moment, you know, for many people, they tell me, you know, Julie, when I was diagnosed with PCOS, all I was told is here's your birth control diet and come back when you're trying to get pregnant, which is really unfortunate on many different levels, because that's assuming someone wants to have children someday. It also is like, that's the only thing to really worry about. Well, no PCOS affects every cell in the body because of the hormonal connections to it. And so neglecting the whole rest of the body just highlights misogyny and how diet culture likes to be. Right. Um, So, so yeah, like the, the, there's so many problems with even how it's communicated when someone's diagnosed with it. It's like, oh, you have this thing, but we don't, don't worry about it. Until you're trying to like have babies. And so, um, oh, and yeah, you need to restrict for the rest of your life. So um, it's, it's a really, it's, a, it's an important condition that I wish there was more education around and um, some more clarity and support along the way. Unfortunately, it seems like all over the world, most people are not getting that.
1: Yeah. So I put the feelers out on social media and asked for people's questions and the kind of experiences and things they wanted us to discuss today, because I do feel like people don't have enough information. And one of the common responses was exactly as you said, I turned up to the doctor, they just said, here's the pill, do this. And yeah, that's pretty much all the kind of information they were given to manage um, PCOS. And so, you know, and and the kind of vague you know you you might need to like yeah watch what you eat kind of Mm -hmm. thing Mm -hmm. and I think like you say it it can feel a bit vague and a bit like a blanket statement and very confusing and so I wanted to know really how your approach differed from that very that kind of normative approach and, and how you do things differently really
0: yeah, well, I have a framework that is based more on how like an individual wants to proceed with this diagnosis. You know, um, one of the things I value more than anything is body autonomy. Like you get to decide what you want to do with your body. and also um, acknowledging that uh, even though many people have this condition, like you said, we actually know very little. Like we mm-hmm. should know a lot more. There should be more funding, more research, but, But we won't, but we don't. And so over the last 15, 20 years working with people with PCOS, what I've gathered are some tools that have helped some people, some more than others. And so I basically am like, here's my toolbox. (laughs) Let's pick through them and you decide what works for you and what doesn't, and we usually start with the things that help the most, pe- most people. And you know, the way that um, I approach it is, I think it's important for people with PCOS to really understand what we know so far about the condition, and remember over and over again that it's not your fault that you have it, and it's not your fault that it's been hard to live with, and it's not all in your head. <laughs> you know, th- those are things that I hear so many people holding on to, even when they may know intellectually that it was passed down through their family, you know, that it has a genetic connection to it, but still feeling like it's their fault and feeling shame and a lot of blame for it. And there's so much uh, power and like wasted energy and just holding on to that shame. And um, my wish, I like, I wish I had a magic wand just to like wave it. And everyone who blamed themselves for their PCOS could just like dismantle that and burn it or something, you know, get rid of that, that, that shame. Um, and, and, you know, really coming to a place where a person understands like the physiology of PCOS, I think is really important because, um, what we know about dieting is that, um, and diet recommendations for PCOS is they're recommended for, um, Uh, because of two parts of the physiology with PCOS. One is that most people with PCOS um, experience extra oxidative stress because of the hormonal imbalance, and that causes um, this inflammatory state, and nothing... Like sucks in diet culture, like the word inflammation, mm-hmm. <laughs> and so uh, there's a lot of recommendations for people with PCOS. You have to diet because of this inflammation. The other side is is most people with PCOS have also really high insulin levels, and again, another diet culture magnet is the word insulin, and so these two things. Um, you know, a person experiencing with PCOS puts them at really high risk to like constantly have to experience um, the push to diet. And what I want everyone to know, and as a part of the the food piece framework with PCOS is um, understanding how diets and chronic dieting, how they worsen inflammation and um, insulin levels. Initially, they can help it. You know, initially dieting, like any diet really, can lower insulin and inflammation levels. But what we know from looking at research that's long-term is that chronic dieting and also weight cycling that comes from chronic dieting causes more inflammation, causes higher insulin levels, also causes high bl- higher blood sugar and higher blood pressure. <laughs> so like all the things that people with PCOS are like scared into like, hey, you have to diet because of these things may actually be what is... Making the condition worse, not better, and so really diving into like what's going on with that, I think is really important. And then from there, like what do you need to do in order to help avoid weight cycling? What do you need to do to help avoid chronic dieting and under eating? And what tools feel help you feel energized? Um, uh, most people with PCOS are told they should like restrict carbohydrates, and that is not how I see it. Like I think it's putting the cart before the horse because, like eliminating carbohydrates, maybe in a short term. And many people with PCOS would be like, yeah, I feel great for like two or three weeks and then I feel like hell, (laughs) you know? Um, So, and then in a Petri dish, it may help things. But really what I have found is that like helping to like focus on what we can add into your eating strategically is what helps more long-term. And then carbs become this moot point. It just isn't something you need to worry about.
1: So the more you're kind of speaking, the more I'm connecting the dots with the questions that people were asking because one of the key things that came up was, you know, um, and you mentioned the whole insulin thing and inflammation. And like you said, there's those two like sticking points for diet culture for sure. And, you know, one of the questions I was asked was, you know, can being dairy-free and gluten-free help? And I imagine that's linked to the carbohydrate thing. Um, And the other thing was, was asked about, you know, how managing blood sugar levels, I presume through carbohydrates, helping the insulin thing. So maybe let's start with Mm -hmm. the dairy and gluten free question. Is there any evidence to suggest that being dairy free or gluten free helps or is beneficial for the condition?
0: So the research doesn't support it like people assume. And um, the gluten-free one, that is one that has not been found at at all to have any connection with um, helping PCOS generally. You know, there's some people with PCOS who have celiac disease or sensitivity in their GI tract to gluten. To me, that's different. And, you know, working with someone to help figure out if that's actually going on um, can be helpful, but that's, For such a few, like that's not a common experience with it. But the dairy part, um, actually, let me say one more thing about the gluten part. Many people that I've worked with with PCOS have found a time where they like experimented with eliminating gluten and they would report like for like a month or two feeling like, hey, this actually feels better. But then two to three months later, it just wears off. And it's so stressful to eliminate um, that it ends up making things worse. Um, and so you may have experienced that too. Someone listening may be like, Oh my gosh, that's the exact same thing happened to me. And I'm not really sure what happens, but I am assuming that there's something with eliminating a food group that somehow alters, um, inflammation levels and maybe allows just for a little bit of a respite, but then after two to three months, the body just goes back. Um, It just doesn't provide like a long-term solution. And there may be someone randomly again, listening, who's like, it felt great for me and it has for 10 years. Well, that's great. But I find that for most people, it only does for like, it's a small amount of time. So the dairy part, there was some research that connected um, dairy with inflammation. And when we look at actually the studies, it was a low dairy um, diet. I don't know what other word to kind of describe it, but like a low dairy diet. But the low dairy, what that was, is it wasn't no dairy. It was um, two servings a day of dairy and they considered that low. And which is like, some people were like, oh, that's what I do anyway. And yeah, so like- not
1: have to completely cut stuff out.
0: No, and it was a really small study. It wasn't like this big, huge thing that we can generalize for a lot of people. And so, and it wasn't cutting it out. That's the thing too. It wasn't eliminating dairy. It was just lower dairy. On the flip side, there has been more research and more subjects in the research looking at high fat dairy and PCOS, having favorable- um, Having a fa- I can never remember the research terms, but like <laughs> having a favorable outcome for um, some symptoms um, and with higher insulin levels, helping to lower them. So, you know, eliminating dairy, what it may be doing for some people is taking away a food that they could add to help. Manage insulin levels and blood sugar. You know, there's something about protein and fat in particular together that helps the stomach digest things slower and helps insulin for spiking for many people. Um, but there's uh, the higher fat dairy, the other thing that it also helped with was um, egg quality and ovulation. So, again, you know, people with PCOS who are trying to um, ovulate, maybe they're wanting to ovulate to be able to have children or ovulate just because it's like. A vital sign. Um, and cutting out the dairy, especially the high fat dairy may be a tool that you're missing out on, you know? So um, when it comes down to a lot of PCOS research, like if you see a headline, I know it's annoying and a pain, but if there's a way you can actually look at the research and just see how long it was and how many people yeah. are in it. Yeah. You know, there's there's so much diet research with PCOS, but most of the time it's six weeks long and less than 30 people are in it.
1: Or is it done on rats? Because you know that all mice isn't... Oh yeah, of course, of course, yeah,
0: yeah. But still, (laughs) even then, they're not... Yeah, the the rat research is not long either. You know, most of them are still just six weeks long.
1: It's so interesting, isn't it? That we get, try to like draw these like huge conclusions from very short Mm. periods of time. And I think in a wider conversation beyond PCOS, but when we talk about um, dieting and, and whether it's effective or not, but then everyone... I don't know, gets so hyped up about these one year, two years. And then it's like, yeah, and, and <laughs> beyond that, what mm-hmm. happens then? Um, because, you know, it's the same. I presume it'd be the same with PCOS as with any diet. Like surely it mm-hmm. should be like one and done. You've done it. Yes. Therefore, you you know, it, if it worked, you would have just have to do it that one time. But if you're constantly having to revisit ways to try and manage your weight, then maybe it's not you that's the problem maybe it's the diet yes
0: 100 um, <laughs> percent.
1: yeah so I suppose then let's talk about the weight loss aspect because that is so highly recommended and I and you know you mentioned there's a lot of shame around PCOS and I wondered that if a lot of shame around that was experienced because um it may be experienced by people who are in larger bodies and therefore they, they feel because of, you know, our fat phobic world that, you know, if only they didn't have this PCOS, you know, life could be different. My body could be different. And do you feel that this recommendation of, you know, blanket recommendation of weight loss kind of exacerbates that, you know, a, the, the kind of weight stigma people experience, um, also that kind of internalized shame.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, there's a lot to that. There's so much you know, to unpack in there because, um, again, when people are diagnosed with the condition, they're told very little about it and they're led to believe that they're in the driver's seat with like fixing it. And, you know, I, again, there's, there's things that people can do to help manage the symptoms, but I, I, what I'm really, um, thinking about is how people are told like your behaviors have gotten you in this mess and only your behaviors will get you out. And unfortunately that's not the case. You know, this is a condition that is a chronic lifelong condition. I don't care what the Instagram influencer is selling. You can't cure it. And what ends up happening is this cycle. And that's why I'm like, this is so much to unpack because, um, when people are told that, that, that's behind the condition. And it's like, they're the ones in charge. Now they have to um, just buckle down and really try. And then you'll be able to either have a family you want or the energy you want um, or to succeed or whatever. Um, what ends up happening is like with PCOS, because of the inflammation and because of the high circulating insulin, and then for many people, also the higher androgens, the the way that a person experiences their relationship with food is going to be different. You know, the, that combination that I just mentioned, like the inflammation, the insulin and the androgens, having those out of balance, it ends up making for really primal cravings for foods. And it's not because someone has a weakness or lacking willpower, or there's like, it's not a character defect, you know, it's because every cell in the body is starving and the insulin receptors are not working and so the body is saying hey you need to eat something now and then it sends more insulin <laughs> and so it leads to this like seriously like primal holy crap i need to eat and people have told me that it feels like they're going to die like literally die and it and that's the message that their body is telling them like they're going to die if they don't eat and what they're told is that they just need to restrain and um For many people, this leads to um, a relationship with food that becomes quite chaotic. And um, lots of um, binging is is common in this experience. And even if people don't binge, even if they don't, and somehow they're not eating in response to these cravings, weight is not changing for most people, but they'll experience the effects of starvation like hair falling out, no energy, again, no period, Even if, and sometimes people end up with um, hypothalamic amenorrhea along with PCOS, which um, I know that's a mouthful, but like basically starvation will um, cause the body to not have a period. And then if you also have PCOS without a period, that can happen at the same time. But um, so if someone could be experiencing malnutrition and not losing weight, and that actually was one of the things that I noticed early on working with PCOS and eating disorders is that people were like, yeah, my doctor told me to eat. This amount of calories. He didn't ask me how much I'm eating. I'm only eating half of that. And I have for wow. the last like year. Um, and no one believes that they're actually like complying. And so that's why like, even if someone is complying, they're not getting the results that people expect. And some people can't because of those primal cravings. And so um, what I tell you all this, because what I ends up happening for a lot of people then is then they're not going to go and get healthcare. They're not going to go to the doctor and it's not uncommon for people to say like I haven't been to the doctor for for 10 years because they were just told to lose weight and made to feel like crap when they didn't and so they just avoided getting re-traumatized, you know, like I, why I, would you go back yeah. to the doctor to experience more trauma? And so then healthcare just worsened. So I think this like push to lose weight is so incredibly harmful and problematic for people with PCOS. And if we as healthcare providers really want to help people experience, I don't know, more long-term health and quality of life, then we need to take away that barrier, you know, take away weight as this thing that we keep pushing because it's literally killing people with PCOS.
1: It's, it, it's so frustrating that yeah, it is creating a barrier between helping people get the care that they actually mm-hmm. need. Um, and would you re- would you say that a big part of that care is working with a dietitian, kind of like yourself, um, as well as a doctor, to kind of get that help and guidance around, like you say, like what works for you as an individual?
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, the thing that I notice is that um, a lot of times people... Um, from their healthcare provider, whether it's like a doctor or or, um, some kind of healthcare provider like that, that they are told that like, yeah, you just need to manage it through food, but they're often not told then any specifics. They're kind of like, well, just pick whatever, or just do keto or just cut out gluten or whatever the thing is. And um, and then also not given a referral to um, a dietitian. And in some ways I'm like, well, I mean, a lot of dietitians are really problematic with their, their um, feet totally like cemented in the diet culture. But um, I was just talking to a group of people with PCOS last night and they were mentioning that um, they would ask their doctor, like, hey, can you refer me to a, a dietitian? And some people were like, doctors would be like, no, or um, their insurance wouldn't cover it. And so it just wasn't even an option. But ideally, I think that it, having someone to really help you sift through, like, what are your like, symptoms with PCOS that really annoy the hell, heck out of you? And then also, um, what, what do you want to prioritize? You know, what is important to you? And um, what do you have access to? And that takes a skilled dietitian to really sift through and help people then to decide what they want to do with it. Um, and then support them to like not, um, I want to say not get triggered by diet culture, but that's impossible in this world, <laughs> but help yeah. help them advocate to like figure out a way to have some, some barriers to prevent it as much as possible.
1: So from the kind of questions put to me, I understand that one of the ways to kind of recommended ways to help manage PCOS, and this was something you kind of mentioned previously as well, was birth control. And and taking kind of hormonal contraception in some manner um, to kind of help manage it. But does it manage it or does it just mask symptoms?
0: Yeah, you know, the birth control, it's unfortunately the first line of defense, um, along with the push to lose weight. And, you know, what we're starting to to learn is that long-term use of um hormonal contraception, contraception is connected to higher insulin levels. So that's something to kind of just hold, you know, if you yeah, are using that um, to kind of help um, eliminate some of your symptoms with PCOS that, you um, it's, you know, it may in the end make it worse, make the insulin levels worse, which um, increasing insulin levels is also connected to increasing androgens too. And so for a lot of people, when they come off the pill, it can feel really jarring and they can experience like an explosion of symptoms. And that's one of the reasons why we're thinking it happens. And I also want to honor people who are on it though, too, because for some people, their PCOS causes like incredibly, um, horrible and get in the way of life period cramps or heaviness with their periods. Um, or it's just the only way that they can um it, have reliable birth control, then I'm like, you know, have at it. Like I'm glad we have it as an option. And um one of the things that birth control does is it does help lower antigen levels, which for then for some people that'll help lower insulin, you know, during that time. But if um I think it's just good to be aware, you know, this is where like knowledge is power, right? And um, you can decide what you want to do. Just keep in mind before you come off of it, you may want to do some things just to like slowly come off of it and make sure like there's some um, supplements and um, tools that people can explore to use to help lower insulin that they may not need while they're on the pill. But I often encourage people to do those things first for like three to six months and then come off the pill if they can kind of like
1: time it that way rather than a hard stop (laughs) and so so,
0: and if they're wanting to avoid that kind of like um just explosion of symptoms that a lot of people experience coming off the pill yeah
1: okay interesting the Mm -hmm. next kind of few things that something exercise related came up and you mentioned about the kind of stress that your body experiences and, and your body's quite high stress so I'm presuming the recommendation for people to not engage in kind of high intensity exercise um two things that came up were like high intensity workouts and running that those kind of activities would worsen symptoms or kind of worse and affect negatively affects the PCOS in some way. Um, and I just wondered what your thoughts are on from an exercise perspective as well, in terms of Mm -hmm. how you can support your body and, and use it, you know, to really, I presume use correctly. It can maybe help manage symptoms, but I just wondered what your thoughts were on on that kind of Mm -hmm. angle. Yeah. I have a lot
0: of thoughts on it and there's lots of nuance to it. You know, the thing that we, notice with people with PCOS who have high circulating antigens is oftentimes they can become quite strong (laughs) and um, amazing athletes. Like I've worked with people who end up being like Olympic level um, weightlifters or some kind of sport in that area or run sub four hour marathons and just amazing athletes. And so for some people with PCOS, it's like, a joy to, to move their body and to do these high intensity things. And for some people, that's just not their thing. You know, I'm not saying that Mm -hmm. like everyone's destined to be this like Olympic athlete or, um, (laughs) running a marathon in less than four hours. It would take me like three times as long, but, (laughs) but anyway, um, what I think is really important is like just even naming that, um, Everyone is going to be different on how much movement they enjoy and feels good to them. So, um, you know, uh, some blanket recommendations are, you know, doing exercise that is super high intensity is really good for you. So push it, push it even when you're not feeling like it. Um, and what I notice is when people have really high insulin levels and high inf- um, inflammation markers, the craving to exercise is really small <laughs> it's usually like really hard yeah, yeah like it's really hard to move and people will often talk about how their body feels really heavy and I don't mean in a sense of like weight on a scale but just like they're the carrying magic. around a bag of rocks yeah, yeah. and like their muscles just feel really heavy and I think that's because of the high insulin levels and so helping someone to recover, make sure they're eating enough and find tools to bring down those insulin levels will often lead to this experience of like, Oh, I kind of want to move my body now. And for some people, then it can lead them into what actually feels good. And that's where, that's where I think nuance can be really important because some people like low grade, um, movement and exercise is what feels best. And certainly, um, walking or, uh, running or, you know, and I, when I say running, I don't mean like marathon, but just doing some jogging or some dancing or swimming or whatever kind of movement a person finds that they enjoy. And it's not something that is as intense. Um, that's something that certainly is um, going to be easier to incorporate into your life. But if you are someone that loves like high intensity workouts, like those um, high intensity interval training, there are some people like a friend of mine with PCOS was like, Julie, I love it. It brings me so much joy. I'm like, okay, well then if it brings you that much joy, like there's probably a way to make it work, you know? And so what that just means then is you're going to need to eat more. You're going to need to yeah. make sure you eat and rest um, in order to incorporate this into your life. So the people that I've worked with who run these sub four hour marathons, they eat, they're eating a lot and they're resting a lot. Um, you know, they have really... Um, important boundaries (laughs) with their time and so if you are someone that thrives in that kind of place um, this is where uh, working with someone who really understands how much food you need or just has a can help you figure that out can be important and you probably need to eat more than you think and rest more than you think Um, and then I I find though for many people it's like um, having different types of movement if they're going to have some high intensity it just I haven't found many people who only want to do high intensity and yeah, it can go okay in that
1: variety and yeah like having it sometimes so interesting about the rest and the food aspect because I do feel like in my experience from talking to people obviously I talk about movement a lot <clears throat> and as you say like highly recommend people to find what works for them and always say the best workout is the one you enjoy and you mm-hmm, know because mm-hmm. therefore you, you want to do it and you, you make time for it but it's interesting that one of the big things that holds people back from having a, a really positive relationship with movement is the idea of resting that's a mm-hmm. bit that can be a big barrier for people to overcome and similarly the idea of eating more can feel really hard when you've been in diet culture and this idea of trusting your your kind of hunger cues and, and trusting yourself to eat more can that it feels very counterintuitive, which is ironic because our intuition, our true intuition tells us we, you know, if we will we'll give us the signs that we need to eat more, that diet culture has given us this kind of fake intuition of, you know, <laughs> like, oh, I, I can't have too much, you know, I had bread for breakfast. I can't have it again at lunch and, and all those kind of rules that come along with diet culture. So. I suppose that kind of goes nicely into the intuitive eating aspect and saying like, can those two things collide? I think there are people who are very interested in intuitive eating and intuitive movement, and are like, but I've got a diet, I've got this diagnosis of PCOS, so I don't think this is for me. And you know, I know that you, you know, have expertise in intuitive eating, so I just wondered how that may look like for someone who with the with the diagnosis who wants to have that kind of relationship with food, where they can listen to their body, where they can eat enough without the fear that diet culture brings? Mm -hmm. So
0: this is a really bold statement, but I think diets hurt. (laughs) I think diets, (laughs) diets hurt people with PCOS more than people without it. Like I think diets are, um, Mm -hmm. such a problem within PCOS treatment and intuitive eating is even more important. People with PCOS than people without, and I mean, that's why I'm like, I know some people are gonna get pissed off when they hear that, but it's just what I believe. Um, I think there's just more harm done because of how PCOS is just framed right now, and so yes, I mean, I I think people with PCOS can definitely do intuitive eating. I um, highly encourage people to um, connect with it, and um, some people with PCOS who have children and they may be worried that their children will have PCOS, they'll ask me, like, what can I do? I'm like, teach them intuitive eating. Yeah. Or, like, or just don't mess with their own innate intuitive eating. <clears throat> and help them learn how to reject diets and not um, weight cycle. Um, so the thing about it is the way we read intuitive eating, like maybe if a person reads the book or explores it from people who are talking about it online, is it may just look different. Um, and, and I don't necessarily think it's different from what Tripoli and Rush intended with um, intuitive eating, but because of the 10 principles with it, I think people think of it almost as like a linear kind of process. Well, I start yeah, with number one. one. Yeah. <clears throat> Excuse me. And um, I I know that's not the intention with it. Like Evelyn Triple has said it many times whenever I've um, talked to her that like, it's not meant to be, you know, a step at a time. It's um, all together, but um, with, with PCOS and intuitive eating work, you know, when I was first working with PCOS, um, I also was really new to intuitive eating and I really, really wanted to make it work for everyone. And I also, at the time at, well, I was a pretty green dietitian too. And when I was training to become a dietitian, something happened in the U S where, um, the supplement industry went from regulated by, um, like our federal like drug administration or whatever the FDA stands for, and <laughs> to no longer being regulated. And so while I was training to become a dietitian, all of my professors were like so pissed and so upset. And so it trickled down to me. And so I was so anti-supplement And I tell you all this because I really was kicking and screaming, dragging my feet, not ever wanting to recommend a supplement, not even like a multivitamin, okay? And I was like, no, we don't need these things. Plus, we don't know what's in them. Like, how are we supposed to know what people are getting in the U.S.? So what I basically, though, started to appreciate is if a person is wanting to recover from diet culture and or their eating disorder with PCOS... um, There's some things that with food you can add, but really like getting enough food is needs to be prioritized. Like eating enough is the priority. Um, Healing a relationship with food is the priority. And also there are some ways you can add some supplements to start treating some of the high insulin and inflammation but it, it takes supplements. So I had to go really over that part. And so that's why I'm like, you know, when I would work with someone with, without PCOS and intuitive eating, like supplements and and some of the things that, um, as dietitians we call medical nutrition therapy, you know, some of the interventions I would wait till like after years and years to talk about, I would talk about in the beginning with PCOS. And it it just, so it may just look different. You know, there may be some different tools that you end up, you um, reaching for earlier than people without PCOS, but it it's also still, um, connecting with how your body responds to it and, um, still also prioritizing healing. Cause that's the thing with intuitive eating. Like it's a healing therapy. It's not mm-hmm. a weight loss tool. It's not a like, let's get you healthy tool. It's, we want you to prioritize healing so you can live your life that you want to live, you know? And, um, and to me that, increases health, right? So, exactly. <laughs> um, But yeah, so if you have PCOS, and you feel like you can't do intuitive eating, I just want to gently steer you in a direction of like, what if you can, and it just may look different. And that's okay.
1: That's the thing. I think with intuitive eating as well, people may think that it's a very like this step by step, one size fits all approach but what's really beautiful about the framework is that it's very nuanced in the sense that you some things may apply to you more than others and the certain things that stand out to other people may be something is you may need to work on a bit less but say like gentle nutrition for, for PC, people with PCOS the 10th the principle is something they need to to more kind of focus on and and that will come up more for them than it may do for other people so it's like it really can be very tailored to the person if you're fortunate enough to work with someone who kind of knows how to to -hmm. approach that so I think it's really great we have this podcast today because at least people have this reference point to say okay I know I, I know I can do this and I know I can you know like look into intuitive eating and find the right person to help me or find the right resources to help me um and then I have I suppose another specific question in that sense I I had a question and I I thought this was interesting because you mentioned about with insulin and I'm um I had someone specifically ask um if you're pre-diabetic or type 2 diabetic with PCOS how can you navigate intuitive eating and movement?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And I thought that was a really interesting question, especially as you mentioned the insulin thing. So I imagine that those two things might overlap. Yes. You know, it can be quite common overlap. So I just wondered what your thoughts were on that as well.
0: Yeah. So, wow. I mean, people with PCOS are already really <laughs> like pushed to diet, to mm-hmm. to like live with this condition. But pulling out diabetes, I mean, it, it really is used as a weapon in the PCOS circles to make people comply with restriction. And um, one thing we know with PCOS is that about half of people with PCOS will get diabetes by the time they're forty. I mean, it's it's part of the physiology. Yeah. It's a um, it's part of the chronic life of PCOS, and you know, it, it's connected to still genetics in your family tree. <clears throat> excuse me, connected to your family tree with, with diabetes. But again, it's, it's something that's used as it's like fear mongering and um, people with PCOS who are like basically taught that like the one thing that they need to make sure they never ever experience is diabetes. And so you need to cut out these things. And again, it's so related really to more of the genetic side of the condition, but still this fear of like, what if I get it? And Um, I think about our, like in the generation that we're in right now, you know, looking back a generation or two, the way that people experience diabetes, it was a death sentence. Like it was like, oh no, you're going to go blind. Oh no, you're going to amputate a limb. Oh no, you're going to have like um, organ failure. Your quality of life is going to be awful. And yes, that still can happen, especially when people are not able to access healthcare, living in poverty. Um, And because of the way we, Understand diabetes now, it's not the stessons. You know, this is something that we know how people can live with diabetes and not like torture themselves in the process. Like, you don't have to restrict for the rest of your life to avoid the symptoms or the outcomes that we um, a lot of times associate with diabetes. And there's amazing medicine. And again, we know more. So what I encourage people with PCOS to do is continue to prioritize healing. And by doing that, like finding ways to avoid dieting and weight cycling. Again, that's something that we know long-term helps keep your blood sugar lower, not higher. And so... um, how, whatever you need to make that work, that's what, something that's going to be a really good thing to put in your plan with diabetes. But if you already have prediabetes or diabetes with PCOS, it doesn't mean that you can't do intuitive eating. Like It's still something that you can do. I, people without PCOS who have diabetes can also do intuitive eating. But the way that a person moves through to get diabetes with PCOS is still different it's because of these like super high circulating insulin levels, it's still different. And so the tools that we talk about in my food piece framework are still applicable, like um, strategically adding foods, using certain supplements. Those are things that you can still use while also trying to find tools to be in your body and feel safe there. Like That can still happen.
1: I think that's really kind of great to know, because I think often mm-hmm. people with various conditions whether it's diabetes or PCOS do feel kind of like left out of the conversation Mm and you know a bit of like what about what about me and I think it's really great to hear that you know you're not left behind there are options for you and you do and I think options is the key word really Mm -hmm. because I think what's lacking with the discourse around PCOS um and and with diabetes as well is that there is only this one way to do it it involves um going down this kind of weight loss route and that's the only option and i know we mentioned body autonomy as well and you have every right to choose that option but do know that there are other options for you and you can choose to do things another way especially if you've had a really strained relationship with food mm-hmm. and you know it's just making it even more kind of difficult and and complicated um And I hope that our chat today has given people, you know, a lot of um, just reassurance that, you know, like it's not your fault. And I I really appreciate you kind of emphasizing that. Um, Before we wrap this up, I have to ask Julie, because I ask everyone Mm -hmm. who comes on the podcast, what has been your most recent train happy moment?
0: Train happy moment. Let's see. I, okay, so in the U.S. where I live, um, up until recently, things like group exercise classes and um, gyms, like they've all been closed, right? And also then when they started to open up, I was like, mm, I don't want to go in there anyway. <laughs> like, um, And um, let's see, when was this? Well, this was a few months ago now. It was... Um, It was cold out. So it was sometime this winter, um, a neighbor who had just moved in in, uh, on my street, I had talked to her and she mentioned that Um, she had met someone else in the neighborhood who was doing these group exercise classes outside that included like really fun music and some, um, free weights. And she's like, it was just so fun. You should come with me. And, um, I'm like, well, yeah, let me know next time it happens. And then she texted me the next day and she's like, oh, they're having a class. And I was having the worst day. Like, um, I had to do some, I had to make some really big decisions, confront some people on things that just were not cool. And, um, I was like upset. Like I was crying, had puffy eyes and I was like, Oh, I don't know if I can go. And she's like, you said it was so fun. You should go. And so I went and I tell you what, I mean, it was something about the music and moving my body and like the laughter that felt like just so healing. I I think it was like some kind of like um, connection with the other people around me and their positive energy And, and then also like the healing that I was like going through in the moment that it just felt so, I felt so strong. And, um, I mean, it was like, I don't know, one or three pound weights. It wasn't like I was lifting lots of weight, but I just felt so strong. Um, and I remember walking home and I was like, Allison that was so fun. Like, I feel so happy. So, so yeah, thank you for telling me tell that story. I haven't told that story to anybody (laughs)
1: story and i think sometimes we don't tell these things and they're really yeah. to reflect on being like oh mm-hmm. like when you know there can be amazing times when movement can be such a positive thing and then like it really mm-hmm. helped me in that moment so i really appreciate you sharing with, uh, that with us um so julie i know that people are going to be like okay where can i find Julie <laughs> for more information on pcos Does she have any resources I can access? How can people find you, maybe work Mm -hmm. with you um, and and get your help?
0: So if you have PCOS, I have lots of stuff for you. The best place to go is juliedillonrd.com slash freebies. There I have lots of like um, content on PCOS. Um, I have a note you can print out to take to your doctor if you're wanting to do um, weight inclusive care with your PCOS. Also some ways to explore what type of PCOS you have. Um, but if you go on my website, I have a, a blog post all on intuitive eating and PCOS. If you like podcasts, obviously you do because you're listening to this one. I also have a podcast called Love Food. It's um, You can find it on my website. And if you really want to dig deep, I have um, a course all in my PCOS and food Peace framework. And um, again, if you go to juliedillonrd.com, you'll get to all of that.
1: I will link that in the show notes so everyone can find you. But this has been such a pleasure and I've so appreciated your insight on this topic like you said I just don't think there's enough information out there so thank you so much thank you thank you for having me my absolute pleasure and that is it for this week's episode of the train happy podcast thank you so much for listening I hope you took something away from this episode and if you did please let me know by sending feedback you can find us on instagram at train happy podcast Or even better, it would be amazing if you could rate and review the podcast on whichever platform you're listening as it really, really helps to support and boost the train happy message. And remember, if you have had a recent moment where this stuff has just started clicking for you, then share your story with us via email trainhappypodcast at gmail.com to become the train happy trooper of the week. (laughs) And if you have a burning question you would like me to answer, then please send those in too, and it may be answered in our bonus Q&A episodes. Once again, thank you for listening, and I will speak to you soon.
0: Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time.